This podcast is brought to you in part by Sing and Dog Double Read Supply. Sing and Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Please visit www.singandog.com to see all of their products. That's S-I-N-G-I-N-D-O-G.com. Janet Engel loves the oboe. She has built her business on providing high-quality, handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Engel Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that's right for you. Double Read Dish listeners can use the code DISH, that's D-I-S-H, all caps, for 10% off your first order at JanetEngel.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunit. And I'm Jackie Wilson, and you're listening to Double Read Dish a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hey, Galee, welcome to episode 19. Woo! It's week two for you, right? Yep, it's the end of week two. It's been a, it's been a very eventful ten days. <laughs> Back oh my gosh! Was <laughs> it was hitting the ground running here. I was getting out of my car on Wednesday, and I was like, you know, I feel pretty good for being in school for a while. And then <laughs> a voice in my head said, "It is day three of the first semester of a new year," and I went, "Oh boy, oh boy." <laughs> Can I tell you? Something that I have been looking forward to that is probably, okay, it's maybe like a shameful secret, but our last day of class is December 1st. Oh my gosh, that's really early. I know. I know. So by the time we hit Thanksgiving, it's like almost the last week of school. Wow. I'm, that's kind of nice. It's keeping me going right now. Jackie! <laughs> I'm like, well, it's almost September, which is practically November, or practically October, which is practically November, and then it's Thanksgiving. It's fine. It's all good. <laughs> it's true, though. I was thinking ahead to, like, okay, because we each invite the guests for our own instrument, and I was like, okay, I want to have, like, these eight people on before the year's over, and then I was like, oh, we actually don't have that many more episodes in 2017, and then I was like... Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, <laughs> it's almost winter break, uh, week one. <laughs> I hate to be that person that's always like, oh, it'll, everything will be better once this happens or everything will be better once that happens and just like wish my life away. But it's secretly, it makes me feel a little bit better about the stress that is right now. <laughs> it's true. It's important to remember we are hashtag blessed mm -hmm. to have faculty positions and jobs in doing what we love so and all of the things that are happening are really good so we just are nervous and excited because we want them to go well you know we want to have success all the time so, right it's, it's yeah. definitely not that I want to be watching copious amounts of Netflix in my pajamas 24-7 <laughs> that's definitely not it is that sarcasm <laughs> I can't tell <laughs> But to view our cups as, you know, half full instead of the negative Nancys we've been being, we thought it would be fun <laughs> to talk about what we are excited about for the 27-2018 academic year or if you're in the orchestral world, concert season. So, Glee, what are you excited about that you have coming up? Ooh, so much. My recital is coming up in like almost, I don't know, just a little over a week. So I'm super excited about that. And um, I'm going to see you at the end of October. So I'm really excited about that. Our read trio, Driftless Winds, has actually two tours planned. And that's one of the things I'm most looking forward to as well. Although I'm super excited for our spring tour in April. Mm -hmm. Because we are so sneaky that we just 
happened to decide <laughs> that the places we needed to tour in the spring would coincide with us getting to hang out and have fun with friend of the podcast, Dan Schwartz at Woo-hoo! University of Oklahoma, and my bestie, best friend, the Sheldon to my Amy, Thomas Dickey, who is director of orchestras at Oklahoma State. Oh, my God. And so it's just such a coincidence how that all happened to work itself out. <laughs> Let's just pull up a map of the United States and randomly put our finger down on one state. <laughs> oh, it, it happens to be where some of the funnest people we know live. Uh-huh. Oh, what a what a surprise. <laughs> what are you what else are you looking forward to this year? Um, well, in a couple of weeks, I have a recital with two of my colleagues. We're calling it Music for Three, and it's a recital entirely of trios for bassoon, clarinet, and piano, which is a combination that I really love and has some, well, I was about to say it has some great repertoire, but two-thirds of what we're doing are transcriptions, so maybe I shouldn't say that. <laughs> um, but we're doing the Beethoven, Opus 11, and we're doing the Muczynski, uh Fantasy Trio. I love Muczynski. Yeah, it's a really cool piece, and then we're doing um, the Glinka Trio Posse. Oh, nice. Yeah, so it's just this fantastic repertoire, and I love collaborating with them, so I'm really excited about that. That'll be very cool. That's awesome. You reminded me, I'm doing a quintet recital at the end of September um, with all this other recital stuff. It's sort of been on a different burner in my mind, (laughs) but... Yeah, we're doing a faculty quintet recital at Southern Miss of American composers. Oh, that's super cool. Who are you programmed? Yeah, Jenny Brandon, Five Frogs, um, the Runnels Quodlibet, which is really fun and kind of like a brain twist because it incorporates all of these um, famous excerpts for all of the instruments, but in slightly different time signatures. <laughs> and keys so that it it like can run together as one piece. So uh playing the um playing the English horn solo from William Tell but on oboe and in duple <laughs> instead of triple. Wow. Yeah, it's really cool. And then a bunch of other stuff that I am blanking on right at this very moment. Well and I just remembered of course I have Barrio in February. So Yep. Uh, yes. <laughs> anything non-musical, like any cool trips that you'll be taking or anything like that? Um, not so much. Usually we go visit family um, twice a year in the wintertime and then in the summertime. So we try to do that, you know, consistently. So going to North Carolina and Michigan, um, we usually drive. We usually drive. I know. Yeah. Well, I asked because I have a cool trip and I want to tell you about it. (laughs) (laughs) Jackie, do you have any fun non-physical things that you're excited about for this year? (laughs) Funny you ask. Um, So from the time I was like 18, it has been number one on my bucket list to go see and hear an opera at La Scala in Milan. Oh, my God. And so this summer, you know, fingers crossed, knees crossed, toes crossed, everything crossed, uh, we will be going to Italy and going to see um, an opera. We're going to try for Aida at Milan. Oh, my God. And we, I'm not trying to sound bougie. We have been saving, (laughs) saving, saving, planning, planning, planning. But it's finally going to happen, and every time I'm, like, feeling stressed or overwhelmed, I just open up our Italy vacation spreadsheet and just kind of look (laughs) at what we have planned. So we're going to start in Milan and then go to Piedmont, which is um, one of the, like, wine regions, and then we're also going to go to Provence. Um, But obviously the most thing we're nervous about is getting those tickets (laughs) Because La Scala tickets can be, you know, hard to come by. And so we've already got our calendar set. And we're going to have to get up at, like, 4.30 in the morning here to, like, be ready to buy the tickets. But I'm so excited. If any of our Italian listeners have any, like, La Scala hacks or anything, (laughs) I want to hear them. And I'm just just dying. I cannot wait. I looked at my husband, Chris, and was like, when we walk in, I might cry. And he's like, I know. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> He's going to be 10 steps ahead of you the whole time. <laughs> He's completely ready for me to embarrass him in, <laughs> you know, this fantastic environment. But, no, I'm so, so, so excited. I'll probably be talking about it nonstop. But that's my big thing I'm looking forward to. That's amazing. I'm so excited for you. I'm, like, 50% excited for you and 50% green-eyed jealous. Yes, it's it's very exciting. So my shout out is a book that I have been diving into for a class that I'm teaching called Writing About Music and Nerd Alert, but it's the Strunk and White Elements of Style book. Do you, do you know it, Jackie? I'm not familiar with it. It is very small. It's like a skinny, small little book. It's only like 10 bucks. And it goes through all of the rules of usage in the English language, just like, uh, like, you use commas like this. You use semicolons like this. You use a dash like this. The difference between who and whom is this. And it's like refreshing all of the things that I've absorbed, like, throughout, like, my younger years. You know, when you're, like, mapping out sentences and stuff <laughs> and, like, totally forgot. And I'm like, oh, right, that's why that makes sense. And, oh, I forgot that we use this with this. And, like, it's total. it's kind of blowing my mind to, like, go through and actually read it. It sounds like the most boring thing on earth, but it's actually super interesting. Wee-oo, wee-oo. We got a nerd alert. We got a nerd alert. <laughs> It's like, I'm like reading, I'm just like reading it out loud and like, okay, let me make sure I understand. Oh, got it. Okay. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. It's like kind of blowing my mind. Well, perhaps equally nerdy. Uh, my shout out this time is um, comes from Kristen Wolf Jensen. Shout out to KWJ Praise Hands Emoji. So she has added a section to her website, kind of an st- extension of Music in the Bassoon. Uh, the web address is uh, bassoon.music.utexas.edu/instructional/the-dash. Hertzberg Caymans dash read dash making dash method, um, or we'll put a link to it in the episode, <laughs> or just Google uh, UT Austin bassoon, and you can get there through the studio website under um, it's under instructional. So what she's done here is a video tutorial series with these great read makers um, videos with Benjamin Caymans videos with Ryan Crapo. Uh, and with William Short, who was on the podcast, um, going through um, the scraping, refining, breaking in process, um, going through a history of the Hertzberg readmaking method, different construction techniques, and it's all these amazing, high-quality videos by these expert bassoonists, and it's such an amazing resource. I was just sitting there completely geeking out, watching all of these videos and getting super inspired um, about making reads, which is a really great shout out for this episode because they're about to hear the interview with Kristen Schillinger, who is going to go bonkers about read making. And you're just going to get done with this episode and want to, you know, make a million reads and they'll all be excellent and it'll be fabulous. So. <laughs> Do I have your blessing? <laughs> yes, I fully endorse. Uh, so make sure to check out these videos. It's really cool and it's just, um, you know, amazing these resources that are being put out for us all to benefit from. Uh, so, yeah. That sounds amazing. JDW Sheet Music is an online store that specializes in original chamber pieces for wind instruments. The website offers a variety of music transcriptions of composers like Debussy, Bach, Piazzolla, and Rachmaninoff. Owner and arranger Jessica Wilkins has produced over 60 chamber music arrangements featuring oboe and bassoon. Jessica's works have been performed at colleges across the country, as well as the 2015 IDRS conference in Tokyo, Japan. For access to the entire JDW Sheet Music catalog, visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com. 
Since day one, Genda reed knives have been the highest quality and the sharpest reed knives on the market, and Genda Industries has been a driving force in educating double reed players on how to sharpen and maintain their reed knives since it is the single most important tool in our reed making kit. Now, Genda has launched a full line of sharpening equipment to meet your sharpening needs. They are offering a wide variety of full-size and travel-sized sharpening stones, strops, and compounds that can be utilized in the studio, the music hall, or on the go, and will make your sharpening better. You've got a good reed knife, now it's time to start using good sharpening equipment. Add the code DRDGENDA, all caps, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any Genda reed knife maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and reed tool roll. Visit them at gendaindustries.com. That's J-E-N-D-E-I-N-D-U-S-T-R-I-E-S.com. Oh, and they're more than just reed knives. We are so excited to welcome to the podcast Kristen Schillinger, Assistant Professor of Bassoon at Ithaca College. Welcome, Kristen. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. We'd love to start by asking you, it's sort of a broad question, but if you could introduce yourself to our listeners and talk to us about your training, educational journey, and how you got to where you are today. Well, uh, I'm a bassoonist. Um, I think that's kind of obvious, but uh, as a former colleague of mine said, she said, you know, a lot of people love the bassoon, but you love the bassoon, <laughs> and I think that sums me up to a T. Um, I really like the bassoon to the nth degree. Uh, I enjoy every aspect of it, and that comes out in my teaching. I definitely define myself as a pedagogue, a performer, and a scholar in equal parts. There is not one of those that is stronger or more important to me than the other. Uh, so Ithaca College is a great place for me because I have opportunities to teach, to perform, and to continue my research in new music as well as read making, which I totally dig. I know that makes me a big old nerd. Um, <laughs> I'm in good company. Uh, uh, my training, oh my gosh, I was all over the place, which I love. I think that's why I like so much and I'm so varied in my interests. Uh, I did my, I started, I have to include this, I started with the fabulous Carl Rath at University of Oklahoma. I studied with him in high school. Uh, what a great beginning. I did my undergrad at Northwestern with Bob Barris. My master's, I studied with Barry Stees, as well as Mike Cross at Michigan State. And I did my doctorate with Jeff Lyman at Arizona State and then finished up my research with the hilarious Albie Miklish. <laughs> Um, where I am today. Well, uh, I, in undergrad, was one of those people that worked very hard. However, the musical side of playing didn't come naturally to me. I know we all have those friends that they sit down and, you know, even when they're playing Mary Had a Little Lamb, it's just the most beautiful thing you've ever played and you find yourself crying when you listen to them. That was not me. <laughs> and I would hear them and I would think, damn it, this is so unbelievable. <laughs> I'd get so mad. And I found that in, I tell you, I'm warning you that I am a big nerd. In music theory, I started understanding how to phrase things better, how to use dynamics, how to use vibrato. So that when Bob Barris would say, why Why are you crescendoing to this note? That makes no sense. That's so backwards. I could take it back and look at it from a theoretical perspective and say, oh, well, of course that makes no sense. That's so dumb. Why was I doing that? Duh. <laughs> so I started taking more and more theory beyond the sequence classes because it helped me play better. And anything that was going to make me a better bassoonist, well, duh, I'm going to do it. So 
about first semester of my junior year, one of the theory professors said, you know, you've picked up so many theory credits, why don't you do a double major, theory and bassoon? So I did. A lot of um, people in retrospect have said, oh, that was so smart of you. You were really looking forward. No, I wasn't. I was just trying to be more musical. But it did help me. Years later, a position opened up at University of Nevada for a theory coordinator slash bassoon professor. I applied on a whim just for the experience of applying for a job, and I got it. So um, the moral of this story is do things, do everything, do anything that helps you, do anything you're interested in, because you never know how it's going to help you. Don't be afraid to take a risk. Don't be afraid uh, to get help. Don't be afraid, period. Because, wow, I was just trying to be more musical, and all of that theory work, that theory double major, um, that's a lot of the reason I got my first job. So at what point did you decide to pursue the bassoon professionally? How did you know that that's what you wanted your career to be? And was there any, like, mentor or kind of, like, linchpin moment that sent you on that trajectory? Well, I was, as I said, I was studying in high school with Carl Rath privately, and I was a member of what was, I found out later, the very prestigious Oklahoma Youth Symphony that was run by Lee Burns. Uh, Lee Burns is quite known in the trumpet field. Uh, he was a member of the um, United States Air Force Band based out of Washington. Uh, and he, oh gosh, what a musical entrepreneur. You know, even though he was in this heyday back in the 80s, we could really hold him up now as a 21st century musician. Everywhere he lived, he started youth orchestras and chamber orchestras and regional orchestras, all while performing at a professional level. What a, what a linchpin of what a musician is and can be for society. Um, anyway, these two gentlemen truly inspired me by who they were because of their enthusiasm for music, their enthusiasm for educating and inspiring young musicians, and their love of their life and their love of what they do. It was just so exciting. <laughs> and it rubbed off on me. And I remember um, fall term of my freshman year in high school performing Beethoven's Fifth and the first four notes, ba, 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 I just sat there and I had goosebumps and I thought, I want to do this the rest of my life. Mm. And I've never looked back. I would love to ask um, about uh, your self-described nerdiness um, <laughs> in read making. And I, I, I would love to know about your book, Bassoon Readmaking. So, um it is becoming less common, thank goodness, but it was very common in prior decades that readmaking was expected of us, but not taught. Mm -hmm. So, um, Jackie, I don't know what your experience was in school. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, you come in your freshman year, you go to your first lesson. I was playing on one of Carl's old reads, and, you know, definitely Professor Barris said, what's this? No, you need your own reads by next week. I didn't know how to make them. I was terrified. I learned from another freshman in the studio. And for the next four years, um, I tried desperately to get better. Uh, but there was no formalized class. There was no formalized read pedagogy. Uh, so this really stuck with me because reads are the heart of everything. The bassoon is not the instrument. The bassoon is the amplifier. The reed is the instrument. Mm -hmm. So if your reed is as good as it can be, if your reed is balanced, if your reed is symmetrical, if your reed is in tune, then you have such a phenomenal chance of being a rock star with articulation, with intonation, with tone color, with tone quality, with, in, with our technique. If something is wrong with your read, you're not even giving yourself a fighting chance of playing the bassoon. 
So when I got to my master's, I'm sure the listeners know Barry Steves is quite the opposite. He is a pretty regimented um, read maker and read pedagogue. So I saw in two teachers, both amazing teachers and very influential in my life, two distinct differences in read making pedagogy. Um, and I thought, wow, <laughs> I, I want to learn more about why they are the way they are. And I want to learn why their reads are different and why this affects their sound and their teaching. Then in comes Mike Croft with yet a third way of teaching and yet a third read style. So definitely the influences of my teachers shoved me down the path <laughs> of studying read designs and read making and read pedagogy. Um, and I now am obsessed with making read making not the scary thing that students have to do, but the very accessible thing that students want to do because they recognize it makes practicing and it makes performing so much easier and so much more controllable for them. And my book, which is about the history of pedagogy of read making, is step one of that. Of the more you know the history of something, the more accessible it becomes to you. Yeah, I definitely relate to that. I mean, I... It wasn't until I got to my doctorate with Benjamin Quilio, who is a very passionate read maker, that I really had an approach and system and read-focused instruction. And I, I look back and I go, not until my doctorate did I feel like I started to know what I was doing with reads. And that's really, it's really crazy in retrospect. Yeah, and you think, man, how many hours did I waste in the practice room right. compensating for bad reads? Mm-hmm. What could I have achieved had I had phenomenal reads? You really blew my mind with the read is the instrument and the yeah. instrument is the amplifier. That is changing everything. <laughs> now you want to go make more reads, right? I do. <laughs> <laughs> so you said earlier that one of your passions is contemporary music, and you've uh, recorded quite a bit of contemporary and 20th century music. Can you talk to us about why that's important to you or why that's of interest to you? Yeah, this actually, believe it or not, goes along with the reads. <laughs> um, I have had an interest in contemporary music since I was young. I, a teacher figured it out long before I did. He said, wow, you know, um, you really like this new music. And I thought, I do? And he said, yeah, look at all the music you've played. This is Mike Croft. He said, look at all the music you've played since I've been here. And I looked back and I thought, wow, George Pearl, John Williams. Um, I'm forgetting everything else I played under him. But he, everything I had self-selected since he had been there was, you know, post-1960. <laughs> <laughs> which we don't consider new now, but when you're a student, you know, and I thought, wow, huh, I hadn't thought of that. I am kind of drawn to it. Um, the more consistent my read making got, the better I became as a player. The more I could do, the better my do double tonguing got, the more consistent my and faster my single tonguing got, the more extended techniques I could do. All of a sudden, flutter tonguing was easy as sin. You know, the more tone colors I could create, uh, the better my technique got. Have you ever noticed when you have a good read, scales are super easy? Mm -hmm. So it's almost like... I fell in love with exploring this stuff. And it wasn't in a kind of a, a self-congratulatory way, but it's that I really enjoyed exploring the sounds that the bassoon creates. Because to me, and I, I know I'm biased, but the bassoon has the widest emotional range of any instrument, including the voice. 
and everybody will fight with me on that. <laughs> you know, and I'm fine. I'm ready for. It. I'm ready for the war. But you know, <laughs> the bassoon can all can do all these percussive things, and we can go to a different place. The voice can't go, and so it's like we can be vocal, but we can also be percussive, and it's. It was just fascinating to me. So I found myself at a young age. I say young from a place of being 38 now. <laughs> it wouldn't be young to a lot of our listeners right now. <laughs> I found myself from a young age being drawn to music that was newer in scope and more exploratory with tone colors and rhythm. And um, so I went with it. And that's not to say I don't totally love the romantic canon and Baroque music and classical music, but wow, wow, new music's my bag. I just love pushing the bassoon and pushing myself and um, putting music to places that words can't go. And I'm speaking here emotionally. You've done an album called Bassoon Transcended, Contemporary Music for Bassoon by Women, and I'd love to ask why that was important for you to do. So um, I work primarily with living composers. Uh, I, uh, the more I worked with, with contemporary music, and it started out just contemporary music, and it wasn't intentional. As I said, I just really enjoyed uh, the opportunities the music gave me to express myself. Uh, but the more I did that, the more I found myself working with music by living composers. And the reason why is I love the synergy between performer-composer audience. I love bringing that to life because when you play the Mozart even though you have an opportunity for interpretation, it is, you are pretty, I don't want to say boxed in, but you are, there are limits to your interpretation. There are definitely limits. And it is the limits of the era. You know, you definitely don't want to come in and play Mozart with, uh, you know, the articulations of today. It's not proper for the era. Well, the great thing about playing the music of living composers is we're still defining our era. So we don't have these limits because we are together. Me, the composer, and the audience, we are together defining what is today. And so I love that synergy. And uh, so I push that direction. As I constantly am being sent music by composers and I myself am looking out for music that speaks to me from living composers, I am aware of the, there's, it's not that there's a lack of music by women, but there is a lack of marketed music and published music. Mm -hmm published in mainstream vendors music by women and composers of um, minorities. So um, this was particularly true in 2000, I'm trying to think when I started this project, 2011, I went to the IDRS conference. This conference was held in Tempe, Arizona, and I wasn't planning on doing this project at the time, but I was flipping through um, one of the major music publishers, one of the major music vendors, I was just flipping through all the music at the conference, and there were two pieces present at the conference for solo bassoon and piano by one. I was horrified. <laughs> so I did a lot of research. Um, I had a lot of music sent to me. I had a lot of mu by libraries, by composers themselves. I did a lot of reading. And that CD represents um, pieces that my pianist that I work with, his name is Jed Moss, pieces that we together chose uh, as a representation of a broad scope. I always say when I give concerts, if you don't like one piece, hold on, you'll like the next one. So a broad scope of uh, range of genre um, of active women composers today in the United States. And I'm really happy to say that, you know, fast forward 
um, five years later, if you go to a conference now, there are so many compose- women composers represented by the vendors. So we have a long way to go, but I think there's more of an awareness of composers, playing compo- women composers and playing um, minority composers that they're there and they're playing. It's not that they're there and they're writing. It's not that they're not there. It's that we as performers um, need to seek out their music. And that when we talk about composers, don't automatically use the pronoun he. Mm-hmm. Just be aware that there's, there's fabulous composers out there of every stripe. Um, so one of the things our listeners really respond to is when we ask our guests about this more human side of being a musician and ask them to either talk about their experiences with or give advice about how to address things like imposter syndrome, self-doubt, performance anxiety. Um, that seems to be what a lot of our especially student listeners are dealing with, and we get a lot of feedback uh, when you know, we have things to offer in that regard. So do you have anything to offer our listeners about your experiences with that? Student listeners, my gosh, I think this stuff is relatable to all of us. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think it's hard, hardest (laughs) to be a musician, harder to be a musician now in the digital age than ever before. Mm Mm-hmm. And people talk about, oh, yeah, because the competition's higher. No, that's all relative. You know, it's all relative to when you were. Um, But it's because we hold ourselves to a false standard. We hold ourselves to the standard of a recording. And for the love of God, folks, do not think that my recording is how I play. Do not think that anybody's recording is how they play because a recording has been edited and re-edited multiple times. And this is why um, attending live concerts is crucial. Mm -hmm. And it's not so that you can hear people's mistakes, but it's so that you can start to adapt and grow an objective ear for yourself um (laughs) you'll never outgrow imposter syndrome i think that all of us all of us deal with that to and you know you guys can break in i think all of us at some point deal with that of oh man how um Am I going to sound like a total hack on this interview? Are people going to listen to me and be like, oh, she sucks. <laughs> what a crackpot, you know. I think that we all deal with that. For me, when those feelings creep in, I constantly have to stop and say, what is my mission? Why am I here? Why am I doing this? I'm doing this interview because I fully believe that my path and my passion and my enthusiasm and my love for bassoon can help others, can help students, can help other professionals believe and know that they have something to offer the world and can inspire them to know that love and passion and hard work it fuels the world and that music is not my sister works for the airline industry and sometimes i get all frustrated and stressed out and i have to remember the decisions i make on a daily basis they do not control billions of people flying around in airplanes around the world <laughs> you know i play at the end of the day i play the bassoon and i hope to inspire people And I hope to make the world a better place through music. And some people will be inspired and others won't. And that's that. So that's, you know, how I deal with imposter syndrome. And that's a hard thing to accept. It's hard to accept that not everybody's going to like you. It's really hard to accept that. But it's reality. 
As for performance anxiety, oh, performance anxiety. Did you know that babies are only born with two fears? They're only afraid of falling and loud noises. Every other fear is learned. Hmm. So I feel like (laughs) it's my job to help students get back in touch with the absolute giddiness of playing bassoon for the first time. None of us got into this because we were afraid. We got into this because bassoon is the freaking best instrument that was ever created by God. It's amazing. (laughs) You know? So it's my job to help them get back to that raw enthusiasm and to help find a sense of control over the fight-or-flight syndrome that kicks in. Obviously, performance anxiety, any sort of anxiety is mental, but it has physical ramifications. And the more that we can help you have control over the physical, the more you can control the physical, the more the mental will start control, you know, calming down, right? So in a safe environment, and the key word there is safe environment, I like to recreate all the physical symptoms. So my students know it's safe. It's in my office. But we'll sit there and have a conversation, sometimes in a group, sometimes one-on-one. It depends on the anxiety level of the student. We'll have a conversation about, okay, when you're nervous, When you're on stage and you're performing a piece or you're in a jury, what happens to your body? Oh, you know, we'll make a list. Oh, my my heart is pounding. My fingers get cold. My vision gets blurry. My mouth gets dry. Any of these sounding familiar? No, not at all. I don't know what you're talking about. It's like all of them. <laughs> my feet get sweaty. My legs get shaky. So we'll make a whole list of them. And then one by one, we'll recreate them. And then we'll start recreating them in pairs. So I'll start with um, my hands get sweaty. So I'll put the bassoon in a stand. And I'll literally put a wet sponge on my students' hands and then have them pick up the bassoon and play without stopping. Or they'll say, uh, my hands get cold. So I have an ice pack in my office, and I'll have them pick up the ice pack and play the bassoon. Or my heart pounds and I get sweaty. So I'll have the bassoon in the stand, and I'll have the um, music on, on a stand, and I'll have them leave my office run around the building, come back without without pausing at all, pick up the instrument and play their piece. Hmm. So we have, you get the idea. Right. And I have things for every symptom they could possibly give me. And as they start dealing with this and realizing this sucks, I hate this, but I can play. You know, my worst fear is I can't play, but wow, even with cold hands, I can play. And then more than that, they realize, wow, the more I do this, I'm actually, as horrible as it sounds, getting used to playing with cold hands. I'm actually getting used to playing really hot and sweaty with a pounding heart after running around the building. So then when those things happen in performance, there's actually this mental aspect of laughing and going, oh, God, this again. (laughs) (laughs) And because that takes over, those physical symptoms go away. I've been doing this with students for years. And with some students, the physical symptoms really do go away. And when the physical symptoms go away, the mental really does start calming down. Because usually what happens is the mental kicks in, the physical kicks in, and then the physical makes the mental worse. Mm -hmm. Um, With some students, the physical calms down and... The mental calms down a little bit, but still stays. And a lot of those students, they never really become a fan of performing. Some of them love performing in chamber groups, but never really solo. And that's fine. Or some of them love performing in ensembles. They're great orchestral players. They're just not soloists. That's fine. 
you know, I'm not out to create many me's. I'm out to create lots of you's. <laughs> right. I'm out to help students find what are their strengths, where are they the most comfortable. I love how you make a distinction between how it feels and how it sounds. Because yeah. huh. because if you're only thinking about how it feels, <laughs> then, you know, you could just, it could just be a downward mental spiral the whole time because you're like, my hands are shaking, my hands are shaking, my hands are shaking, this feels terrible. And then you're like, it may sound fine mm-hmm. out to the audience, but you would be and missing that part of it. That's a critical component. Oh, thank you, Glee. That's a critical component I left out. We video all of this. Oh, cool. So that they can hear, oh, I didn't crash and burn, but they can also see, like, oh, my gosh, my hands were shaking so bad. And then they watch it and realize, oh, it didn't look nearly as bad as I thought. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So particularly when I'm dealing with students, uh, they're struggling with performance anxiety. Everything is is, every performance is videoed Um, because often what they internalize is wholly different than what is actually happening. And to be able to, it comes back to that objective um, listening. It's, it's near impossible to objectively listen to yourself. (laughs) Um, So I find that, Video, you, first of all, we should all be recording ourselves all the time, but I find that um, when you record yourself or if somebody else records yourself to set it aside and come back a couple days later so you can't remember, oh, on that third note, I was sharp, you know, <laughs> so mm-hmm. you can't remember those minute details. It's very helpful. One of my favorite questions to ask is um, how you approach things like self-care and work-life balance, because as I'm sure you know, this um, music thing can really take over your life in many ways. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I've definitely gotten much better the last few years at this. One thing that I have started doing in the last few years is this is abnormal for a professor, um, but I treat my academic position like a nine-to-five job. So I go into the office every Monday through Friday, and I say nine-to-five, but usually I'm in there around 8.30, 8 or 8.30, and I don't leave no matter what my class load is. I don't leave till 5 or 5.30. Um, and any downtime I have between students or if I have a huge block in the morning or a huge block in the afternoon, I practice. So when I'm home at night, I'm done for the day. And this has um, really upped my practicing. And it has also very much improved my work-life balance because when I'm home, I am fully home with my family. You are speaking to my soul right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'd love to go back to reads actually a little bit because we asked about the book and the inspiration behind the book, but we didn't really get down to the nitty gritty about like your approach to read making, your habits, your routines, and uh, just kind of your general advice. I know it's your philosophy that the the read, like you, you need great reads in order to practice, and I think that's unique, maybe undeservedly, but I'd love to hear about your approach to that. It's been very inspiring to me. Okay. Um, I'm always happy to talk about reads. Like, we could do the whole hour on reads, and I would be elated. <laughs> like, we just want to start over and only do reads. I'm cool. Um, Gilead might run away screaming. <laughs> I can transfer anything into oboe language. Anything. Um, first of all, I this whole adage of rehearsal versus performance quality reads, I don't believe in that. Um, there are only reads. They are all performance quality. If you are practicing on anything less than that, 
you're compensating in some way. You're compensating with your air. You're compensating with your embouchure. You're compensating with fingerings. And that means that you're creating bad habits. Uh, so, <laughs> um, that means that I always have reads in every state. I always have a case full of finished reads that are highly consistent. Um, they could be one of the tricks I do when I give read lectures. I go to schools and give read lectures all the time. Um, is I go down the row in my case and play one read after another so that the students can hear how interchangeable they are. Um, the only difference in them is per, is the cane, ideally, because you can't, a cane is, every piece of cane is different. Um, but, and I like that, you want that because of course, Right now, morning, it's quite chilly out here. It's low 50s, and by the time we get to afternoon, it'll be uh, mid-80s. Sorry, I know you're jealous. Um, so I'll probably end up playing on two different reads. Um, however, uh, so there's only one type of read. I always have, for me, this is all my opinion, <laughs> Um I always have finished reads. I always have a, a stockpile of blanks. I always have mummies, which is what I call reads wrapped in string that are drying. Um, and I always have um, cane soaking. Um, I, I know a lot of people make a ton. I will addendum that to be a crap ton of blanks in the summer. But for me, personally, living in a region with um, four seasons, I like to play on reeds that were made in the season. So right now I'm playing on summer blanks, and um, I will then play on fall blanks, winter blanks, et cetera, et cetera. Do you have solstice reed parties? <laughs> um, I've tried to get my students to stockpile blanks like this. Like I've tried to have, let's have blank making parties, and they're not as they don't do that. <laughs> so, how do you approach like if you have your case of like we call them A reads, maybe? What is your philosophy on those like B reads? I don't have that. Like, literally, I work to a point of consistency so that they are interchangeable. And what may be an, an A read today may be a B read tomorrow. They're that consistent. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And I work on that consistency um, through a process of extreme um, cane selection from – I process my own cane, which is very normal, I know, for oboe players – but I work on that level of consistency from a detailed um, cane selection process starting from the tube and continuing all the way through until the read is a blank. So do you have a high discard rate? Yes. Oh. Yeah, I have a really high discard rate. However, I have a really high turnout rate, like in the probably 85 90%. So what I tell students is I put my energy in the early stages of read making, and I have very little energy in the finishing stage. Like I scrape it to my numbers, uh, and then uh, which is about a three-day process. Um, I scrape it to my numbers, let it sit, adjust it to the bassoon and to the light, and I do very little adjusting. So do you look for, like, very similar density and hardness for even to start scraping on it for it to get past that point where you say, yeah, I'm going to work on this piece of king? Yes. Oh. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I do a lot of work in the beginning, um, and I actually really enjoy it. I turn on Netflix, and <laughs> my dog curls up. He knows what I'm doing now, so when I bring down all the tools and the cane, he just curls up and sleeps on my lap. And so we have a little uh, party and watch Netflix and get it done. Uh, what repertoire or resources stick out in your mind as great teaching tools? 
Well, this will come as no surprise to you, <laughs> uh, but I really think one of the best resources that we have in our community is the Double Read community itself. Um, I think that, and I hope your podcast makes this change, but I think students are often very afraid to reach out to professors and to reach out to orchestral players. And I keep saying, no, we're all so nice. (laughs) (laughs) There's this wide community of bassoonists and oboists who have been there, done that, and are just dying to share their wealth of information. Mm-hmm. And they're so friendly and enthusiastic and in love with what they do. And um, I have found anytime I have reached out with a question or a concern or a, hey, want to work on this together, everybody's like, heck yeah, let's go. <laughs> I, I love that. I think that's the best resource there is um, for teaching for performing, for research, it's amazing. That's the number one resource. Um, repertoire. Uh, this, I personally, my warm-up is quite extensive, and I use this with my students as well, so I'm going to give a shout-out to it. I use uh, Christopher Witt's warm-up book. I use it, and he knows this. I use it differently than he talks about, but I'm a big proponent of it. I use uh, the Uberdu um, scale and chord studies. Fabulous. Um, I use the Almond Raider articulation exercises that Jeff Lyman published with Trevor Kramer. Um, this is a fabulous way to both speed up and improve articulation, but also to help people learn to tongue correctly. So if you have somebody who's anchor tonguing or tonguing too aggressively and you need to change how they're tonguing rather than just have them sit there and go do 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 these are really engaging articulation studies. They're a little pricey, um, but they're fabulous. And then I use a this is something I made up <laughs> uh but um there's a ear training exercise called ear shield. And I use it as a intonation study. Um, so uh, this is kind of my bulk warm-up every day. And I also have my students use it as a warm-up every day. I say warm-up. It's about an hour. So for our final question, can you talk to us about what advice you would give to a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Oh, wow. Um, First of all, I would say don't have my career, have your career. I think uh, a lot of students latch on to somebody they admire or somebody that they think has an awesome job and and they try and follow that person's path. But my best advice is, Figure out what your nerdiness is. When I'm at my best, when I'm doing my best and having my most success, it's when I have settled deeply down into the trenches of my nerdiness. So for students that are interested in figuring out, you know, how to have a career like mine, dude, you got to figure out. What's your nerd zone? What is you like so giddy and so excited and so enthusiastic? And don't shy away from it. Throw it out there. Put it on a T-shirt. Wear it proudly. And then find mentors that will help you be you. Not to be many them, but to help you be you. That's critical and crucial. That is awesome advice. Oh, it was so great to talk to you, Kristen. Would you tell us um, what fun, exciting projects you have coming up and uh, where our listeners can find you on the Internet? Sure. Um, I've got some cool stuff coming up. Uh, I have recorded my third CD, um, Bassoon Unbounded, and it is, again, um, pieces by all awesome, fabulous living composers. I'm super psyched about it. Um, 
And I'm not going to say their names because I'm afraid I'll forget one, and that would be horrible. Uh, <laughs> but, but it it does include um, some pieces written specifically for me, um, including Jenny Brandon's new Sonata Double Helix, Love the her. very jazzy, sweet piece, uh, Swing Shift by Adrian Albert, and um, Kyle Havater's new, very fabulous work, uh, diaphonic. So I am super psyched about these works. Um, so that will, you can be looking for that. Um, hopefully it'll be out by December. I will be on tour with those works and more in Texas in October for all you Texas listeners. And I'll be performing here in Ithaca, the Barrio Sequenza later in September. So many smaller things, but that's the big stuff on the horizon. I can be found on the internet at shillingerbassoon.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and taking the time to chat with us. It's been uh, such a cool interview. Oh, thanks for having me. This was so much fun. I can't wait to meet you, Gleet, and to see you guys in person again. Oh, totally. 100%. So we hope you enjoyed episode 19. You can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, or YouTube. You can follow us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or on the web at DoubleReadDish.com.